we finished 22 last time and I had intent intended to start <coughs> 23 but it didn't happen so we'll read the first eight verses <coughs> good grief <coughs> no I'm good <coughs> Water. <coughs> Proverbs 23 and since Mr. Hugh is up I'll get you to start Bo y'all just take uh one verse at the time. When thou sittest to eat with a ruler, consider diligently what is before thee. And put a knife to your throat if you are a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, but they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth, but be discerning enough to desist. You read verse 5, Mr. Hugh. 5, okay. When you set your <clears throat> your eyes on that which is not, for riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. And I'll finish it. Eat thou not the bread of him that hath an evil eye, neither desire thou his dainty meats. For he for as he thinketh in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, saith he to thee, but his heart is not with thee. The morsel which thou hast eaten shalt thou vomit up and lose thy sweet words. Amen. Okay, so <clears throat> this uh, section uh, has a pretty apparent theme, right? Um, it starts and ends with notes about food. Right? So if that's the case, especially in a section this small, you can assume that Whatever is in between the beginning and the end uh, also has the same theme. We just kind of have to decipher what it is. And I think uh, a helpful word to kind of give us an idea is in verse 2. Um, King James, and I heard uh, Mr. Keith read from the New King James, I believe. Uh, it's the word appetite. Um, and it's uh, talking about the, uh, to use the negative term or the, the uh, the vice, if you will, or the the sinful inclinations would be something like the lust of the flesh. Right, that's what's being addressed most uh, directly here. But let's take verses one to three, and then we'll kind of move on through the rest of it, uh, because verse one to three are, are very obviously uh, woven tightly together. Um, so when you sit down to eat with a ruler, you should consider carefully what is before you. And you should put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. <clears throat> Do not desire his delicacies, but they are deceptive food. Does this remind you of anything from the Gospels? What? When the Lord mentioned that uh, I have food you know not of, but my meat is to do the will of him who sent me. Okay. That's one of the one that popped into my head. All right. And uh, talking about beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Okay. Um, one of the one. I can't hear you. Oh, I'm sorry. I said, uh, whenever he was um, at the well, and he said, "I have meat you know not of. My meat is to do the will of him who sent me." And then also, whenever he said, "Beware of the yeast. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees." Um, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Mm -hmm. Those are the two that came to my mind. 
Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the ones, I can't remember exactly where I read it, but it's uh, one of the ones I want us to talk about for just a moment is how Jesus calls on you to pluck out your eye or to cut off your hand in order to avoid sin, right? Uh, this passage carries a similar idea where Jesus uses, or, well, Jesus by application wrote Proverbs, but uh, where in the text there is this teaching basically about uh, it's better to um, physically harm yourself than it is to give in to your appetites, basically, is the implication, right? That your appetites are so uh, seriously dangerous because of the lust of the flesh that you should be more willing to take harm to your body than to give in to that sin, right, is the implication. Um, and you could say that in, at, at some level, if you just took verses 1 to 2 by itself, that that which is offered is not really the problem yet. He does bring up delicacies in verse 3, but if you just kind of thought about verses 1 to 2, they can kind of stand by themselves and see that, you know, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, uh, you need to consider your appetite, right? And it's it's not just for a ruler. I'll bring up in just a second why he uses that, uh, why I think he uses that. Um, but it's that appetite is the issue. And to use a, a more biblical phrase, the lust of the flesh, right? That inner compulsion, right? When you uh, feel this outward pressure pulling you into a situation, right, that might be okay, and like, because it's, it's not condemning food here, right, it's condemning the overconsumption of food, and the danger of that, and this is a, a foil for all of sin, really, is teaching us how temptation works, temptation preys on our appetites, and he says, uh, when you sit with a ruler, now, because uh, Proverbs are so general, um, um, and I think the Lord in his creative wisdom tried to use, or did use, um, a bunch of different images and words trying to show us the, the broad-ranging nature of these general Proverbs. This is, to me, this is not just in play when you eat with a ruler. But what he's drawing on is how there are multiple types of things that play on appetites, right? So, if you sit down to eat with a ruler, a king, someone who's you know more exalted in society than you are, one of the things that's going to be pulling on you is your desire to impress him, right? And that's a, an appeal to the lust of the flesh, right? Not that you want to intentionally upset someone who's more important than you outwardly, but that's a, a thing that could lead you to sin, right? It can lead your appetites to be out of balance. But then in verse 3, that's when the whole delicacies things come in. Whether or not you're eating with a king, if it's uberly uh, delicate or delicious food, um, you need to understand that deception is at work and that deception is in play. It points to this idea that you feel pressure to have your appetite guided by something other than prudence. Right? Um, you can think of so many uh, situations where you go into, I mean, you could, you could use alcohol for an example, where you go into a situation where alcohol is not condemned. Um, you know, it's, it's a, uh, a good thing that God has given us, but it's an easily abused thing, right? 
and what causes us to abuse it, yes, could be the power of the drink, but could also be a, uh, a, a crookedness in our appetites, right? We cease to just enjoy the drink, and we go too far, right? We give in to the appetite. We don't have our appetite under control. And there's that, that pulling on you, right? Um, and notice that he says that it, you need to think of your appetite as having a knife to your throat, that you would work at curbing your desires. Self-control. Right, right. But he uses these, you know, he's using these uh, extreme images, just like Jesus does with cut off your hand, pluck out your eye, to show you the serious nature of temptation and the power of, um, of the appetite. Um, where'd my little sheet go? How did I go from one to two to... Interesting. Okay. Maybe I only wrote that other one there. Um, I want to read some of what Bridges says here because he has these sections where he just goes on a roll and it's hard to uh, exceed him, really. Um, but he says... Uh, I'll just try to pick through here. He says, The Book of God is our rule of practice not less than of faith. Meaning the Bible tells us not just what to believe, but how to live, right? It enforces religion not only in our religious, right? so not only in worship is religion enforced, but in our natural actions as well. 1 Corinthians ten thirty one is what he appeals to. Whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, it directs in the daily details of common life. He says, suppose you are invited in the way of providence, not province, <laughs> in the way of providence, to the table of a man of rank. How wise would you be to consider this caution? He says in Proverbs 23, verse 1, consider diligently what is before you, right? When you're in these situations, it's a, a self-reflection, right? Consider diligently what is before you. Think where you are. What is the besetting temptation? What impression your conduct is likely to make? Wantonness of appetite or levity of manner gives a plausible ground of prejudice to the ungodly or stumbling to the weak. What he's saying there is that First of all, you need to be concerned how others perceive it, right? That you are, if you are lazy in your own appetites and lacking in self-control, then someone who is, uh, what does he say, uh, ungodly will uh, plausibly think something contrary to the faith, right? That you're giving a bad witness is, is the ultimate point. And then he also says to consider the stumbling of the weak, right? Um, but after, sorry. I thought you were about to say something. But after all, so this is when he gets more towards the specifics of the person, like your own actions and how you should think of yourself rather than how others are going to think of you. He says, after all, ourselves are mainly concerned. May not the luxuries of the table spread before us stir up disproportionate indulgence. Right? That when we see something nice, if our appetites are not in control it can lead us to disproportionate indulgence, right? wasting money, right? um, any other thing. 
He says the rule is plain and urgent. If you are conscious of being given over to your appetite, make it your first object and delight to bridle it, even with violence. And he appeals to that passage I quoted in the Gospels. Right, to bridle your appetites, even if it is by violence. Act as if a knife was at your throat. Be stern and resolute with yourself. Give no quarter to the lust. Resist every renewed indulgence. It says the dainties are deceitful meat. And sometimes they are from, uh, they're, they're dainty to us because the host is insincere. They're trying to provoke us, right? So you see the, the breadth of the imagery that's involved here. It's not just about food right? or even purchasing things, right? It could be about the workings of the devil himself using someone or some object to draw us in, right? That it's not always us misusing something which is good. It could be something that is truly deceitful, right? Um, think of Eve, right, in the garden, right? That whole situation was deceitful, Um but he says it will always lead to the disappointment of the one who anticipates the pleasure. To use them may be lawful, right? So it's not always something that's sinful on the surface, but to be desirous of them is fearfully dangerous. Right? And then he says, who knows what his own weakness... No, I read that wrong. Who that knows his own weakness will deem this caution needless? You know, this is something that takes a serious amount of self-reflection because we live in an age where we basically normally have the money to buy what we want at a moment's notice or, or very soon, right? We, we normally don't really have to go without. If we do, it won't be for very long, right? Or we can find an acceptable substitute. And part of that is us having untrained appetites, because that can become a dangerous thing very quickly. Who that knows his own weakness will not deem this caution needless, or will deem this caution needless. So if you understand your own weakness, you know the importance of this. And he says, alas, was it not the lust of the flesh that was the first inlet to sin? And he cites Genesis 3, 6. That was what Satan appealed to in Eve. That was what ultimately broke down uh, into the very first sin, was the lust of the flesh. And he talks about how it affects a Christian. He says, Often has it tarnished a Christian profession and damped the liveliness of spiritual apprehensions and enjoyments. If Christ's disciples, who were conversant only with mean and homely fare, needed a caution to take heed, much more must it apply to a ruler's table where everything ministers to the temptation. So again, he's appealing to the Gospels to see that Jesus gave the disciples these same warnings to take heed to yourself. Remember when he, taught, when he sent them out, he sent them out with very little, right? So the implication is very similar there, right? To, to be content and uh, to understand the, the need to control your appetite and all that stuff. Um, if that was the case with them and they were only exposed to the lowly outward estate that they were, how much more so those who are at a ruler's table? He brings up another great point when he says that, uh, I can summarize this, but he says that our 
our command from God from the beginning is to take dominion over creation. What happens when we violate these proverbs is creation takes dominion over us. Right? We allow the flesh to be, become enraptured with the love of creation rather than taking dominion over it and putting it to its true use. It's not just a matter of lust of the flesh, it's a matter of stewardship. Um, let's see. Anybody have any thoughts on that before I kind of move to the end of my point on these first three verses? Like Daniel was uh, Shadrach, and Abednego, and they refused the the profane stuff. And not only that, but because they didn't partake of it, they also they received kind of like a I guess you would say like a pat on the back from the caregiver but whenever it came to bowing their knee they were already resolute in their appetites if they had been given to their appetite it might have caused them to stumble in their mm-hmm. dealings kind of like a bribe you know you yeah. feel obligated to do the thing because mm-hmm. you've been taking part in this yeah I mean I think another um, you know maybe more common for women but I think it's very common for men too is things like gossip Right, that it's it's as a right, yep, and you feel the the pull, right? Uh, it pulls on your appetites of self praise and degradation of others that the lust of the flesh uh, so often gives into. Um, I referenced you know alcohol earlier. That's a real thing, right? That, that people have to have a knife to their throat when they take it. Um, income. In general, like just the way you view money, and it gets into that in just a moment, where you, the way you think about riches and all that, it addresses that as well, because it's still going to be talking about appetite all the way uh, to the end. Um, and he gives you this helpful warning in uh, verse uh, 7. He, As he thinks in his heart, so is he. And he says, eat and drink, says he to you. But his heart is not with you, right? When you're facing these situations where you're being wooed towards a lack of control of appetite, it's not the, uh, the voice of the Savior that's doing that. It's not the one whose heart is with you, right? Because Christ does not lead us into temptation. He delivers us from evil. Right? Thinking of the Lord's Prayer. Um, I... Maybe it's because I thought about this a little bit more a couple weeks ago and I didn't look back at my notes as much as I I could have. Um, But when I first read this and I I read the the passage from Bridges, I I was just, I was super convicted. Just to be honest with you, just the, the way I view delicacies and pleasures in life. Because this is not just, again, it's not just a call about food. It's a call about like an overindulgence of comfort. Right. Uh, even uh, again, the the abuse of a good thing. Right. Um, you could even frame it around a certain understanding of relations with one's wife. Right. You could. Right. The abuse of a good thing that your appetite can go too far in those things. Um, and I, I don't know what other you know kind of temptations might come to mind uh, with y'all, but just think of the 
the many situations where you kind of hindsight, you realize you messed up, and it was simply because you gave into your appetite. And the warning for that is put a knife to your throat. The little idols. Right, yeah. Like the little, the little idols in your time, the, the little bad stewardship here, the little bad stewardship there. Yep. The, the minors yep. that people might look at and be like, well, you know. The things that actually pile TV. up. Yeah, I watch TV, you know, for eight hours a day. <laughs> okay, well, well, but I don't watch it at eight hours straight. I only watch, you know, a couple hours here and a couple hours here. When you finally add it up, it's like, whoa, I watch way too much TV. Mm-hmm. Or um, games on your phone if you got those, or watching YouTube or anything like that that you could be devoting yourself to something spiritual. Um, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. So these things can get in your way and you, they blind your eyes. Yeah, and your your I mean your appetite just gets askew. I mean God has placed an appetite within us for that which is good. That's part of being made in the image of God to pursue the higher, the, the good, the true, the beautiful, and all those things. And then we fall for the the false luster of the things of, of the world, or we take a good thing and make it bad. Right. So. The cotton candy. The cotton candy. Washing in the water and it disappears. Yeah. <laughs> I have a different spin on this one. All right. Um, that I, 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 I can see this being a warning mm-hmm. and and here's my here's the way I think about this okay when you sit down to eat with a ruler question why are you there mm-hmm. what are you there for that's that was going to be my question and you know because you know there's there's a reason why you're invited to sit down to eat with a ruler mm-hmm and that reason might not be apparent to you. And so you have to be kind of circumspect about this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and um, you know, it sort of reminded me a little bit about uh, there's a scene in It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey goes in to meet with Banker, and the banker's gives him a cigar and he's offering him a job that's way, way more money than he ever did and he got up and he shook his hand and then he realized he shook the guy's hand and he said, wait a minute, wait a minute you know you know, uh, you know you're, 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 you're scheming you know, he didn't, I don't remember the words but you're scheming to, to manipulate me and you're just feeding, feeding my ego and so I can see how this is um, a warning, and 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 all three uh, subjects in here, you know, the eating with a ruler, wearing yourself out to get rich, and then eating with a, a, a miser or a stingy man, all kind of have the same theme in mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, I, yeah. my take on this. Mm-hmm. Be careful. You know, right. you're there for another person's reason. Why? Right. And then be careful of the little things that they're offering you and what you will have to do to pay them back. 
pay yeah. them back or yeah. Yeah. You get into the miser right and the miser is like you know he's concerned about how much you are consuming mm -hmm. and what he really wants is to be paid back for that mm -hmm. you know yeah I, I think the, the the first section is with the with the ruler mm -hmm. is you have to be careful what's before you for the miser both the miser and the ruler have some kind of an angle and I think the middle verse when it's talking about riches is addressing you you know because you may be you may attend the rich man's feast because you think you can get something out of it you can mm -hmm. gain from it and you may be meeting with the the uh, the, the bread of the stingy man because you think there's something that you can gain out of it and I think in the middle verse that talks about do not toil to acquire wealth be discerning enough to desist so I think that the part of what the message to you other than being circumspect is that you know don't think you can gain by this mm -hmm. so. yeah I mean I'm I'm not saying you're disagreeing with me. I I think that's just no. a, a further fleshing out right. of my general point about appetite. Like I, mm -hmm. I laser focus on appetite, but sure. Um, that's I mean. Here, here's a really good example. Okay, the the whole Myrtle Beach, Hilton Head, and not sure any other beaches. One of the ways they make tons of money is on timeshares, selling people timeshares. And so how do they sell you a timeshare? They offer you something for nothing. They offer you, you know, a, a, free, a free weekend and a, and a dinner or something like that for sitting and listening to a talk for an hour or two hours or something like that. And the, you know, and you know when I when I people told me, yeah, I'm going to do it, man. It's a free weekend, this and that and the other. I'm like, wait a minute now. Let's be circumspect about this. That company <clears throat> has paid a lot of money to train those guys to make you buy something. Mm -hmm. And if they weren't successful, they would have been out of business long <laughs> ago. Yep. But they're very successful at it. And you know, and what they do is they try to feed your ego. You know, you can save all this money and you get wonderful beach trips and this and that and the other. And so, you know, that's a, to me, that's a, a good, you know, application of... No, oh, yeah, that's good. Um, I was there. <sighs> I'm serious. We, we went yeah. and listened to the, to the spiel for the first hour. Right. And then I told them, I said, not interested. Right. Oh, boy, then, lunch they, then, they, then they brought the big guns out, okay? Yeah, oh, yeah. And I was there for another hour. Yeah, and I mean they really put the pressure on you. Yeah, and finally told him I said, "Now you can keep on and keep on all you want to keep on, but as far as I'm concerned, my mind's closed. I'm walking out the door." Mm -hmm. And yeah. and they let us go, but boy, they sure weren't happy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but see, there's enough people. Oh yeah, that succumb. That it's 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 a profitable business for them to do that. They wouldn't mm -hmm. be doing it if it wasn't successful. No, yeah, that is a. That's true. A very. 
that's a good good point mm -hmm. you know and it's all kind of a you know offer of something for nothing type of thing nothing's it's, free that's right yeah <laughs> nothing's yeah. free these pyramid scheme things are the same yep yeah same dog you know, they're just offer you all this and mm -hmm. it never comes to fruition except for a very few mm -hmm. all right um so yeah all those uh situations uh, like mr leary described in sitting with the ruler in verses one to three and then facing the uh desire for riches in verses four and five and then in verses six to eight uh eating with the miser they're all going to play on the appetite right in one way or another right, so uh, those are certainly examples of um, situations where your appetite is being appealed to. And we could, you know, just say it's just your heart is being appealed to. Mm -hmm. um, but you have the very specific uh, command in verse 1, consider. Verse 2, to put a knife to your throat. Verse 3, to do not be desirous of his dainties. It doesn't say don't eat them. It says, "Don't be desirous," right? Mm -hmm. And then in verse, deceptive right? That's right. Yeah, eat it with understanding, right? Right. Um, and then in verse four, right? Labor not to be rich and cease from your own wisdom. Right? It's not do not labor. It's just don't labor in such a way that you're simply pursuing uh, riches, right? Uh, New King James says, "Do not overwork to be mm -hmm. rich." Right? Don't. Um, I mean, you, you know how some people do, right? You get this uh, laser-like focus on uh, acquiring wealth. They lose their family, yep. they, uh, everything, because all they think about is work and making money and all that. And there's a danger that comes with that. Don't overwork to be rich. It doesn't say don't work to be rich. It just says don't overwork. Right, understand the balance uh, because of your own understanding. Cease, says the New King James, to cease from your own wisdom is what the the King James says to cease thinking like that. Right. Um, then in verse five, still carrying on with the same idea about addressing riches, we're in the second section there. Will you set your eyes on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? Every time you get money, it's like it just flies away. <laughs> something happens. You can save a little, but something always happens. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven, right? And I think that's certainly tied with uh, overworking to be rich, right? That it cultivates a certain type of mentality and approach towards money that, that causes it once you gain those riches to, for you to not be able to keep them. Right? That's a possible connection there. Um, and then do not eat the bread of a miser. Uh, that's what the New King James says, a miser. Um, the King James says, do not eat the bread of him who has an evil eye. Mm -hmm. right? Same idea there. Uh, nor desire his delicacies. So there you go, back to verse 3, right? Do not desire his delicacies, verse 3. Do not desire his delicacies, verse 6. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. 
eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. Again, you have to be circumspect and think about why this man wants you to eat with him, kind of like what Mr. Larry was bringing up, what Mr. Keith echoed. Right? You have to consider why you are in that situation. Um, I think uh, Bridges doesn't say why, but he says to think of where you are and what the besetting temptation is and what impression your conduct is likely to uh, to make. Because why would a king want to eat with you? <laughs> Another good point for that particular one is you got to remember the author and remember who his dad was. Mm-hmm. And remember... Almost like he'd know what it was like to be a ruler hosting people. Well, almost like what he's like to know what it's like to be in a, a ruler's home coming from a humble you know, pastor and all of a sudden having a spear chunked at you. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Yeah. Well, his daddy would have known that. Yeah, that's what yeah. my yeah, yeah. yeah. From, you know, I'm pretty sure he passed that down to Solomon. You know, I bet he did. Pretty sure he told that story a couple hundred yeah. times, you know, especially after he got old. He was like, you know, that time that uh, he threw that spirit in my head when I was playing the harp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and verse eight uh, picked up on I think something Mr. Larry was echoing earlier as well. Uh, just the understanding that there there will no be there will not be any satisfaction, right? Once you've eaten it up, once you've played the game, once you've been fooled, you will actually vomit it up and waste your pleasant words, right? So this is a a uh, a situation of um, of table fellowship, right? Of uh, being brought into to someone's space and you needing to be um, diligent and discerning about what's going on and that you can be fooled by them you need to discern whether the person's heart is with you based on verse 7 you need to discern uh, what the delicacies are being offered to you uh, for Um, and again just kind of draw it back and think about the various um, uh, applications you could make to this with just temptation in general right because you're eating with someone they're serving you the food. It, it's not so much the case anymore because our, our culture is, is not as much imbibed with respecting what other people give you as maybe it once was, right? But there was a time where uh, I, I'm sure you wouldn't dare refuse the food that someone offered you. Like if you were in their home, it would be considered the height of rudeness. An insult. An insult to them. Now... You invite somebody over, you offer them food, they say, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need that. I'll take some of that. I don't, I don't want any of that. Right? And it, it, the Bible, it seems to me, is assuming a situation where you have this food in front of you. You're scared to say no. You're under pressure. Right? You're, you're feeling the, the temptation, the pull. And it is, again, it's not even necessarily to sin in, in the, the framework of... Uh, verses 1 to 3 and verses 6 to 8. But it is a situation where you have to be discerning right, and understand what you're being offered. Because if you give in and you play the temptation game and, and give in to it, whatever you eat is going to be vomited up and all your pleasant words will have been wasted. On a broader sense, so doesn't it cover the whole idea of covetousness as mm-hmm. a whole? like? Because in putting your faith in your riches, putting your faith in what you've done, mm-hmm. 
putting you know, your trust in that and uh, also not being discerned. Yep. So um, basically the fool. Yeah, he, he, the very first sentence he says, because he puts verses 4 and 5 together like we just did, he says after verses 4 and 5, we have now a warning against covetousness. If riches come from the blessing of God, receive them thankfully, consecrate them wisely and freely for him. But to labor to be rich is the dictate of our own wisdom, not of that which is from above. Let them be gotten if they can and how they can without needless scrupulosity. I like that word. Solomon, however, describes by a beautiful figure their true nature. They are a mere non-entity, an illusion, that which is not. Folly indeed, then, is it to set the eyes or to cause them to fly, he says, upon this nullity. One moment it seems to be within reach. The next it has eluded our grasp and flown away as an eagle towards heaven. That's just some of what he says on verses 4 and 5. There's a, a prayer that he gives. It's actually taken from the uh, the Book of Common Prayer. It's a, a prayer for, um, what does he call it? Uh, it's the, the prayer for the first Sunday in Lent, actually, that you would use for that whole week. And it says, uh, Grant unto us such abstinence that our flesh, being subdued unto the Spirit, we may ever obey thy godly motions right so that's only part of it Um, but think of praying that way and then that can kind of let me transition into one of the other things I wanted to bring up Um, but think of praying that way that God would give you abstinence right control that your flesh would be subdued to the spirit Right, because you know Paul talks about this that flesh is at war with the spirit and all those things, and it's not that we as Christians have two natures, but we still have the power, excuse me, the power of the flesh, while we have the indwelling of the spirit as well, union with Christ, and that those things are at war with one another, at war within us, as it were, and we're praying that God would give us a type of control that comes from our flesh being subdued unto or beneath the spirit so that we might ever obey thy godly motions, right? So you have these situations, right? Sin or, or even a, a more neutral thing um, where you have a decision to make and you feel the war within, right? These proverbs address the war within because that's the seat of the appetite, right? And we need to pray that God would give us a certain type of self-control so that we might obey the godly motions in those moments, right? That the leading of the Spirit might be a more... Uh, common nomenclature to to describe that um, because you know so often it it takes with uh, a, a a deeper study of the word and some some longer self reflection to see where you have fallen prey to your appetite it doesn't always click right away right maybe it takes years to realize where you made a foolish decision based on uh, your appetite but you know that as a Christian that especially if you're walking with the Lord uh, faithfully, that those godly motions, the provocations of the Spirit, the leadings, not the voice of God, let's not say that, that's weird right? and wrong, uh, the leading of the Spirit is with you. Right? And we need to pray that God would enable us to live in such a way that we would 
be led by the Spirit. I'm, I'm persuaded that's what Paul is actually talking about when he says don't quench the Spirit, right? Because how often do you actually have your Bible in front of you open? Right? A few minutes a day, probably. Maybe an hour, maybe more, maybe less. And then on Sundays, probably more. Right? But what is uh, with you and leading you and calling the Scriptures to mind throughout the week and throughout the day? Well, it's the Spirit, and if we refuse those godly motions, the godly uh, provocations, we're quenching the Spirit. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, I keep under my body, or I keep my body subdued, and bring it into subjection. 1 Corinthians 9, 27. I'm persuaded this is also connected to how soft men have become today. Because there's no self-denial. There's no focus on uh, spiritual and bodily rigor. Because we're all just broken anyway. Right? We're all just, right. We're all just sinners and we can't do anything to make spiritual progress. But... Right, yeah. Right. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. <laughs> right. I mean, that that's kind of the, the vibe that you get. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. a it's a... There is no third use of the law, right? There's no live now like this. It's only I can't. And somehow that exalts the gospel. You tell people to practice something in their own body, like you tell them to practice um, a form of restraint, self-control, a diligence in their flesh. Well, but it's, you know, I don't well, if, 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 you know, if God doesn't help me, then I can't do it. Okay. Uh, I can see exactly where you... There's a bit of truth to that. Yeah, I can see where you're going there, but now what you're saying is you don't have to try. You don't have to buffet your body. That's right. Because you just got to go in there and whine and molly grub about it and say, oh, look, God, do this to me instead of practicing yeah. righteousness. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's why Paul, it's part of the reason Paul uses that imagery to do with athletics, right? running a race, uh, those kind of things, yeah. Don't box the air, right? <laughs> yeah. But it's true. It's a good point. I mean, you, you would never tell your uh, employer who offered you training to be prepared for this job that, you know, you should get the job just because they promised you and you failed the training. I couldn't do the training anyway, right? Or <laughs> a test in school or a sports event, right? Um, I don't practice because I actually can't get any better. So. <laughs> you need to pay me to be a brain surgeon. I don't, I don't, I don't want to actually do the brain surgery. I just want to be there. You're going to be a brain surgeon by grace? Yeah, be yeah. a brain surgeon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Or a rocket scientist, you know. You gotta, yeah. you know. I want to be a rocket scientist with all my heart, but you know, I don't have the knowledge. But well, the ambition to get the education, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's oh, it's a sad little world these children. Have. I can do it on my own with the spirits' help. The spirits from the bottle. <laughs> I do that. All right, y'all ready to move on to verse nine? I will say, I, I learned that Proverb 4 and 5 mm-hmm. from the NIV, so please forgive me, but I really like the way they worded it. It mm-hmm. said, 
Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, and they sprout wings and fly away. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so even, you know, if you, if you really think about there's, you know, guys that have been, have become very wealthy, their goal was not wealth. Mm-hmm. You know, their goal was to, you know, to, to do something um, innovative or, you know, to pursue an idea that they had. But it wasn't, at least initially, for sure, it wasn't about the money. It was about the, you know, the accomplishment and seeing what they could do. Mm-hmm. You know, you really think about how many, how many ball players really start out just for the money. I don't think a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. I mean, the money's nice now. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, take getting forty-five million dollars pitch you know, for the season in the major sure leagues. Um, but I'm sure, I can pitch. But <laughs> no, you can't. Not like that. Forty-five. <laughs> Not like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but you know, but it 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 doesn't. You know, the money follows. <clears throat> it, but if you, but if it's all about the money in the beginning. I just don't think that's enough of a motivator right. to do it. Well, the way how you're talking about people who make money, um, there's a lot of uh, innovative ways that um, very uh, mature guys I've, I've been learning from and listening to for the past few years have have come to be very wealthy. One, you don't really know it by looking at them. But two, when they start talking about their initial goals, mm-hmm. it was things like passive income, so I could hand off assets to my children, mm-hmm. um, gaining property to protect my family in the future, and shore up, you know, um, real estate and value, and you know, just those kind of things. Where, you know, so often what our our gut instinct is is. I want to choose the job that gives me the most money. Right? And those two kind of thinking, they're totally different. Right? And some people will sell their entire life just to bring in that paycheck. Yeah. Not thinking about the future. Right? I'm reminded we read Proverbs 13 uh, Sunday morning in church. A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Right? Not thinking in that way. Right? Because when you focus on riches like that, I mean, you can get all the paychecks you want to, but ultimately money just flies away. Right? Think about how the older generations always taught their children to do things. And then it was probably after the Depression that they stopped teaching them their trades and they started sending them to school to learn. They wanted a better future for them. But a lot of them didn't take into consideration for them to have a better future. You need to give them what you know and then let them go learn too. You need both. You need to build on the foundation of what you know you already know, give that to them, then let them move forward from there, and then they can teach those things to their children, and they can move forward from there, mm-hmm. instead of everybody starting from education and losing all the knowledge that was previously passed down for agriculture, you know, mm-hmm. all kinds of craft and yeah. stuff like that that was just kind of thrown out the window because oh, I want a better future for my children send them to college and I, I think too in the Bible wealth does not mean dollar bills oh, no. riches does not mean 
you know, you have a fat wallet kind of thing. It It's a certain type of possessions, right? It's also a certain level of independence, right? Because of the way that, just the, the way that the world was then and everything was um, more agriculturally based and whatnot. You could provide for yourself. You could provide for your family. I mean, think about, right, yeah. Think about what Abraham had. Think about what Job had before and after, right? And how, I mean, it never said uh, they had this many dollars in the bank, but we, I mean, just the world we live in, you can't really do nothing about it, but uh, it just goes to show that that the way that we think of wealth is is pretty modern. It's it's not a bank account uh, in that sense. And you can't, you can only do so much with a bank account as far as passing it down. But actual assets and and things like that. I'm talking like I know money, but y'all are the ones who know money over there. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that, Miss Larry? That line of thinking I was just going down. Um, I think I think it's important to um, what Bo was saying and what you were saying about you know. The, the, well, first of all, you know, there has to be some type of idea. There has to be some uh, succession and training for stewardship and dominion because otherwise the money goes fast. If you've ever talked to an estate lawyer, um, you know, and I mean it's like talking to a salesman. I understand that. But uh, they, they, you know, there's endless stories about, you know, this father, you know, left, you know, his kids with a lot of money and two or three of them went through it, you know, within a year. And it could have been, it was enough money for them to live off of for their whole life. Um, look at uh, look at NFL and NBA players and, and various athletes, you know, that, they, you know, they just, uh, you know, go through... You know, go through their wealth like that. I was about to die. Because they don't have the because they don't have the the training, training. And the discipline. You never see that kind of money to yeah. be able to. Yeah. That's a good point you make about the uh, like the inheritance ideas. Right. Like, and the inheritance is way more than money. So don't be a problem, right? <laughs> right. Don't be. Yeah, a that's kind of the difference between. I don't know, say you say you do die and you hand off a business that continues to mm-hmm. create, generate income, and if that child was brought up in that business and could take that over, yep. they're going to continue to have that wealth from that mm-hmm. business. Whereas if you give them a whole bunch of cash, it's gone. Yeah. They buy a new car, whatever, the car crashes, yep. yeah. they get a nice house, whatever, right? It's just gone. Yeah. So it's, yeah, different types of of wealth and riches for sure, mm-hmm. and and like you kind of you kind of touched on it, but time. I was listening to a thing on the way over, and with kids especially, they give you if they were if you were to ask a child what they wanted from their dad, mm-hmm. I don't care how much money you have, right? Yeah, I don't care that you worked all day and you worked Saturday. Like they wanted that ten minutes to play catch, yep. or they wanted you at that ball game, or whatever it is, right? 
a fishing trip, mm-hmm. they don't they don't want you gone. So yeah. it's it's a balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go outside and let them throw the frisbee at you. <laughs> Teach them how to play pickleball. That's right. <laughs> um, a, a sad story of this is uh, you met uh, Jason Pope, an elder up at Lebanon. He was telling me this story how I can't remember exactly which generation it was, but somewhere along the lines, his family had several hundred acres in this community and it was all connected and whatnot. And when the patriarch died who had all the acreage in his name, he divided it up. Mm-hmm. Well, I think he divided it up against uh, with three or four of his children and all of them, except one, sold off the family land. And today, they have, I, I think Jason said it was a fourth or a little less than a fourth of that land still in their family name. And he's trying to buy it back mm-hmm. and trying to raise his sons to kind of think the same way. But, I mean, we're talking about, like, you know, hundreds of acres and and whatnot that you could... You know, even if you don't do anything but have it, it's a tremendous asset and something that your uh, forefathers very arguably would have worked for and and saw was very important. And I'm like, why didn't he just sell it before he died if he didn't care if you sold it, right? And then leave you the money. I mean, it's just that happens a lot, though. Um, I'll just like, Daddy tell you about her great grandfather. But if you go up to Robbinsville and kill a dragon, mm-hmm. uh, you'll have heard that. Oh, yeah. When you get up to the top, it's a place called Hooper Ball. Well, that was her great grandfather, and he owned everything up there. It was amazing what he owned at that period of time. And he went into the Civil War, mm-hmm. okay? And the government took all that property away from, from them, and he was a pauper. Damn Yankees. Yep, damn Yankees. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, you, you just think of that. You know, it's, it's just amazing that somebody take all your property away like that. Oh, my, my great-grandfather, Peyton, he had uh, allowed this particular denomination of church to uh, be on some property he had. And they took it plus the adjoining properties, and basically they, they did the homesteading on them, mm. and uh, they squatted on it mm. and stole it. So that's why he didn't go. To- <laughs> <laughs> he he was the one that had it right before they started going to Pentecostal. Anyway. <laughs> well, we got. About five minutes before we're up on the hour. Do y'all have any final thoughts or comments? Um, I was just going to share with you talking about going to a ruler's table when I had the invitation to go to the governor's mansion in South Carolina for dinner. It blew my mind when I sat down at that table. I think it was a seven-course meal that day. You know, and the servants were there. I said, I never saw anything like that. Mm-hmm. So 
I wasn't tempted by nothing. I was just taken back by everything. It was it was just unreal. But uh, that was really something. That was that was an experience. Mm. Who was governor? I, who was the governor then? Gee whiz. What was that? Nineteen oh eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trying to think. I didn't think what it was. Did yeah. you? I know just picking that one. But uh, it, it was um, I was in a shrine at that time. And the oldest governor I remember was uh what was the fellow who had a, who was uh committed adultery? While he was Sanford. 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 Mark Sanford. Yeah. yeah, Sanford. Who was the one no, before him though? It was before Sanford, I think. West was a wet. No, no, West. Uh, anyhow, I'm not sure. that governor. Hey, look, Sean only knows Emperor Trudeau. That, that <laughs> governor was a shrine, so it, I guess that's why he invited. Uh, There's one I, re I remember before Sanford, though. David, you something. You got more common with Louisiana people. No, I've never been there. The French part. Okay. <laughs> There's a French like, aspect. Probably. One percent of Canada that actually speaks Spanish. Really? Yeah, it's like yeah. Montreal. Just did. Yeah. Wow. Well, also this—it wasn't on the western side anyway, oh, yeah. was it? Because Sean was on the western side. Okay, so South Carolina governors. Oh my! I think I can turn it off now. <laughs> <laughs>